Welcome to Mannerisms, the Manor Lakes Peter 12 College podcast, where we share the stories of people in our school community. Asunta Mojua is one of our student mentors. Her previous job title at our school was African Community School Liaison Officer. Asunta was born into a well-known family in South Sudan, but she was still exposed to the horrors of civil war and the desperation of growing up in refugee camps. However, Asunta has come through it all with great dignity and grace to be a valued member of our staff. And it's a pleasure to have her here for a chat. How are you, Asunta? Hello. Great to have you, Asunta. Um, Now, both your parents are very well known in South Sudan, so I want to start first with your father if we can he was a very prominent man Uh, but before I ask you about him I just want to share some information that I've been able to gather about him on the internet the great source uh, because seriously I reckon they could almost make a a movie about him with all the uh, experiences he was involved in Um, so Asunta your your father Major Nial McColl did I pronounce that correctly Yes? yes good Um, He was a very intelligent and brave man. Um, He got a Master's of Economics at Cambridge University in England. He worked for the South Sudanese government in the finance ministry and he became the Lieutenant General of Police uh, and he was actually later appointed Auditor General. So these are pretty big jobs. And he was also a key figure in the war in Sudan. He He was actually arrested Uh, as a political prisoner seven times and he was actually sentenced to death three times. I found that in an internet interview with with him as well. So straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Uh, So when your father died, unfortunately, in 2018, the local Jonglei state governor described your father as a hero, a war veteran, selfless patriot and freedom fighter who fought to achieve the dream causing decades of liberation struggle i mean i've i've rabbited on a little bit here asunta but these are important details i mean you you must be so proud i mean tell us what your father was like and and what kind of influence he had on you um as you said thank you for having me i'm also glad to be here yeah um it's been a great pleasure to be in Australia and to be in this amazing community of Manalek. Uh, my father has been such an amazing human being. Um, he goes with everybody. He's, um, he's gentle. He's, he's really a human being. That's how I can just yeah. summarize who he is. Um, he has been helping in my growth and I'll talk later about myself. <laughs> but yes, he... Yes, we'll get to that. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. He has also helped in the government um, before, like in the rebel, the war. He was the first to go to Libya and get the guns, get the South Sudanese radio, like the rebel radio that was used during the war. Yeah. So he has been part of that, though we have less time with him. We have been like living mostly with my mom, mm. but every single time that we see him or meet him, he tells us stories that make us who, are, who we are today. Yeah, sure. And you, you mentioned your mother. Uh, she was a Christian reverend in South Sudan and uh, she later became the first African woman to be ordained a priest in Melbourne. Uh, she's obviously a, a, also a very strong person with strong values. Yes, my mother has a very strong connection with the community as well. She has the Dinka congregation um, in the Anglican Church. 
that she's ministering at the moment. Yes, she was the first woman to be ordained in Australia, actually, to become a, de a deacon. And then later, she was made uh, a full pastor. Yep. So, yes, um, so she's, uh, she's well-known and she also has strong personalities. And she's been working since we came to Australia and she still, still work up to today, 16 years later, still in the same job. And everyone loves her. It loves her. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, your Christian faith is important to you. So how does it influence you in your work? My Christianity has been part of my life since childhood, since my mother is a Christian. My dad was also a Christian, so his name was Solomon. But because he was studying in the country that was mostly dominated by Islamic, so he had to give up the name Solomon and use his name as Majunel Makol, which is his mm. traditional name. And those are his document names. So we have been Christians and till today I still practice my Christian faith. Um, I feel like God has been guiding us through all the ways that we have gone through. The while we have been traveling through um, in the bushes, in it's, it's amazing how we survived. People have been killed in front of us while we were walking in the bush. People have died, like, um, we have been walking in the flooding and the snakes could bite people in front of us. And so I believe that God has been guiding us through until the way we came to Australia. And that has been kind of my belief that I have to be full, fully Christian. Mm, yeah. I, I'm open as well. So I'm, I'm supporting those that are not Christians. And I have friends who are atheists and I do respect what they believe in and what they have. But I am a Christian and I let them know that I'm a Christian and I, and I pray whenever I want to pray. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And so um, you were born in Juba, the capital of um, South Sudan. Um, your family f fled South Sudan when you were five. What were the circumstances behind that? So what happened when the war started I in South Sudan, when the, in Sudan, it was Sudan, when the war started, my dad was of course, in the bush, he was part, first of the first 10 men who were well-educated in the community. So when they were planning the war, then it was known that they have their families, of course, including my mom. So their wives were left behind in the city. So when the government of Sudan was trying to find the originals or people who are rebelling, then uh, my mom decided to move the whole family to the village. So we went to the village and then mom left us in the village with my auntie because I didn't have a grandma. Both my grandmothers were dead. So we were living with um, my auntie, the sister to my dad. And she actually followed to the bush as well because we have the culture that you have to follow um, where your husband is. So she, yeah, so that's what happened. And that's where we moved to. We moved to the bush and uh, to the village and we stayed in the village before we could become a refugees in the refugee camp. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you mentioned before about some of those horrific details of seeing things that no child should ever have to see. Um, what else do you recall about how hard life was uh, before you left South Sudan? I believe like there's, you know, there's starvation, there's drought, there's homelessness. Um, I think I read something an old newspaper article from the age where your mother, mother was uh, quoted early in your time here in Australia, in the early 2000s, where she said sometimes you had to eat bark and leaves. I mean, um, while you're worrying about war and having your grass hut burnt down, for instance, things that we just are so foreign to us here. I mean, that, that sort of stuff must have been just horrific. Um, yes, of course. It, 
the main thing is like when you are young, when you're kids, you don't normally understand what it is. But yes, there were um, there was a lot of worry. Yes, we have to eat um, like we have to. We have the cultural things that are advantage at some times. So when we were in the like in the bushes, yeah. there's no food. Then we have leaves that we have to use as food, and that's like a cultural thing. And so and the animals as well are killed, and then we eat meat from the animals. There's some animals like antelopes that are eat eatable. So yeah, those are the things that we we used uh, to live on while yeah. we were in the bushes. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um. And so for years, yeah, you lived in refugee camps in Ethiopia, sorry, Ethiopia, Ethiopia. Um, um, Uganda and Kenya. Yeah. Um, what was life like in those refugee camps? When we went to Ethiopia, I went to Ethiopia actually by myself yeah. um, with my brother because my mom by then and my dad were not seen. They were not part of our life because when the war started, my dad left first and then my mom left after and then we were left with my auntie. So when the war came, like, closer to the village, there was burning of the houses. And then I, I remember, like, the bombing of the area. And I didn't understand what it was in real sense. So we started, like, running, and then people just ran. And then that's how we continued to become refugees in Ethiopia. And by then, my mom was already in Ethiopia when we first came. And my mom came and picked us, like, the, the kids and the other people, the other ladies, older ladies and other younger ladies were in different locations. So mom heard about what was happening back at home and so she had to come and look for us and she found us. So we, that was how we started living with my mom. And I remember that's where I also started like school. And two years into it, I'm not too sure how long into it, but yeah, we were almost settled again, staying with my mom and then and then the war broke out in Ethiopia. And then we had to run back to South Sudan, which took us about a couple of months, like three months. We had to walk at night. And then in the day, we had to sleep. Until when we reached the border of South Sudan, then we started walking in the day because it was in the bush. There was no rebels, no, no government. It was just the bush. So we walked back. And then from South Sudan, that's when we walked to Uganda. And so went back again to school. and. I had to kind of sit the test because there are no paperwork, there's no certificates, there's no system to show which level you were in. You mm. just you just ask what level were you in in the refugee camp, and then you say what level you were in. So yeah, that I ended up starting my primary two. I set for primary two exam, which was so simple. English was nice because yeah. that's my favorite, and so I passed, and I went to grade three. That was in Uganda. And then grade three, I, it was almost the end of the year. So I did the test again, and then I went to grade four. And then I became like the only girl from there. That's how my education started. It was under the trees. So when it's raining, there's no school. When there's no rain, then we, we go to school, and then we sit under the trees, and then we ride on, like on the ground because there were no exercise books. Yeah. And then when we got registered by United Nations, there was exercise books, but they were given also to the only clever students. So you have to be clever to get half of the exercise books and a pencil to write on. Did you get one of them? Yes. Good. The I, I thought you would have. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so how far, up the, how far did your education extend while you were there? While I was in Uganda, I said, um, like, I did grade four and then grade five. 
and I did grade seven. So grade yep. seven is like the primary living examination for Uganda. Mm. So I did the primary. And in primary, from grade five, there was no other girls. I was the only girl in class. Yep. So I did grade five, grade six, and seven. And then I went to senior one. So I became the only girl among boys. And so what happened was with the girls, mostly some of them were engaged. Education was not that important for our South Sudanese girls. Yep. So boys have to be educated, but not girls. So when I went to grade seven and said, I went, I did senior one and I got the scholarship as well from the United Nations. So I did senior wow. one in Uganda. And then there was also war in Uganda. So we had mm. to run back. And that's how we came to Kenya when I was in senior two. So I joined senior two in Kenya wow. and did up to senior four. Yeah. My high school. So I completed my high school there. And in Kenya, actually, when I came to Kenya, I became the only girl because there were no girls in high school. It Gee. was a refugee camp school yeah, uh, sponsored by United Nations. So I did my high school there, form two, which is senior two, senior three and four. And then I got the scholarship to come to Australia. And that's mm. how I came to Australia through my There you go, Ruby. We're, we're speaking to a trailblazer here, a very strong woman you can take uh, some inspiration from. So Asunta, you had, uh, you got two sisters and a brother. I mean, how traumatizing is it for people and particularly children, to be going through those environments and those situations? Or is it a, each person deals with things differently, but, or is it a case of you, did, you were young, you didn't know any better? Um, there's always a different. There is how you take things. You would take them normal. You can take them harder. And what I'll say as from childhood background, it's like mm. you take things as normal when it's happening to everyone. Yeah. then you think it's a normal thing. But if you have seen something, let's say like a child born in town coming to the village and then it's like moving from place to place, no settled place in a particular time, can achieve more, then it's totally different. So the only thing we could cling to was the faith, which is Christian faith. Yeah. Oh, we know God will do more than this. Yes, God will help us out of this. This is not the end of the life. That's how we made it. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so were you the eldest child? Yes, I am the eldest child in the yep. family. So you have yeah. extra responsibilities? Yes. There were also times that I had to be like a parent to my siblings yeah. because um, my mom was not there most as well because she has to work as well. She knows English. She was a bit educated, so like... Then she has to go to work. Then I had to parent the kids, help with food, put them to sleep before my mom could come in. She could go and spend a couple of days at work and then come back to us. And, of course, we need that because uh, we need clothing, we need food mm. as well. So, And she's so things like that. So, yes, I have been part of the kids and been thinking about my family more than myself. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, Ruby's the oldest uh, child in our family. She's got two younger brothers. I don't know how she would go with uh, helping raise your young brothers, Ruby, but it just gives <laughs> an insight into different um, elder children around the world and different scenarios. Now, uh, in the refugee camp in Kenya, I believe you became a primary school teacher and an interpreter or translator and also a field officer in child protection. Um, tell us about those experiences, please, Asunta. Um, yeah, when I completed my high school, I could not get the, 
the university studies. So when I finished my high school as being the only girl in, in the whole um, refugee camp, I had to go back and teach in primary school. And then the, the organization, the United Nations staff, also used me as the advocate for girls' education that you haven't mentioned. Yeah. Um, and I was also like the field officer. The field officer was I had to write the cases in the community because there were girls that were forced into marriage at the early age. There were girls that were kept in the houses not to go to school because they had to be groomed to be married to so-and-so well-known families. Mm -hmm. There were also women that had issues with marriages. Because what happened is like when your husband died, according to our cultures, then your brother-in-law inherited you. Yeah. So they had a choice because they're in a refugee camp. But because um, the community and the cultures are still following they were still forced into relationship with their in-laws that they don't like. So those were the cases that I would do. And I also work as um, with neglected children. I used to support some of them, and some of them ended up finishing high school while I was here. So I was still sending money back to support them in, in schools. So the neglected children are children like who don't have, um, who were born and the parents have died and no one was taking good care of them or those kids that come in the refugee camp with relatives and the relatives are not supporting them that well. Since I had my income, I had salary because I was a teacher. So the money that I was, I would get the money, give them to my mom and then she'd give me my pocket money. My pocket money would be what I share with them actually yeah. because I have to show the responsibility and being part of the family at the same time. So yeah. this was something that I thought I should do and that was an extra thing that I was doing. And so, yeah, so I started working in the refugee camp because I did not have a chance to go to university. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so you came to Australia in 2004 um, with your mum, two sisters and brother. Yeah. So was Australia your only option? Um, yes, Australia was my option. Um, it was a blessing that I actually got the chance to come to Australia. So what happened was I had two choices, which is Canada and Australia. With Canada, you had to sit a test, you had to wait for a year and you had to, it takes long process. But the Australian government came in and asked for um, students to be assisted. So there were about 399 boys who have completed their high school. And I was the only girl who had completed my high school among those boys. So the Australian government said they would help resettle us in Australia. So our names were on the board. I was one of them that was uh, got the opportunity to come to Australia. So the rest of the boys came. Others came with their relatives. I chose to come with my mother and my two my two sisters and a brother. So that was that became like my choice, the only choice that I had at that particular time. Yeah, mm. yeah. and uh, you immediately fell in love with Australia. I mean, you thought it was heaven. Um, I think the quote you use is it was like quoting the Bible, um, you know, a land flowing with milk and honey. Something like that. Exp tell us why you, you loved Australia so much. Um, to be honest, Australia, it's a nice country to be in. And with the experience and life that I had in Australia, I could say, and I, I still say, Australia is a land of honey and milk. Okay? Australia has all the opportunities, whether you're educated or not. If you're active, you can get a job. You can work. Feed your family. 
So if you are educated, you can again get a job and feed your family and feed yourself. The first thing was I felt safe in Australia because I could not see guns around. Even the police are walking around without guns. And it was a shocking thing to me that because growing up with a gun, when I see a gun, it's like there would be war. It reminds me of war. So that made Australia a safe haven. And I fell in love with Australia. And as I stay longer and longer, I get more in love with Australia every single day that I live in Australia. Because the thing is, I'm improving, I'm developing my skills, I'm raising a family and the safety. And it's like, I can't describe Australia enough. Mm, Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, hearing you speak like that so passionately about it. um, And yeah, it is... It, it is a really emotional thing and uh, I hope you, you don't mind me saying, Asunta, you're wiping your eyes now with tears of joy for how grateful you are. And, you know, we need a reminder sometimes, don't we, Rubes, to be grateful for what we have because sometimes we can just take it for granted. So it's wonderful to hear you speak so passionately, Asunta. Yeah. Well, um, so you worked as an interpreter for two years. So how different was it to your previous experience as an interpreter in Kenya? Um, so when I came and became an interpreter in Australia, um, the difference was that, uh, interpreting in Africa was, I would, it's something that you do and leave. But when I came to Australia it was something that I'm doing every single day. It's like, so we have things like TV that reminds us like English became my first language basically, um, because that's what I'm using on daily basis. So and it also became like more easier because I'm not focusing on issues and what's happening to an individual. It's just like I'm focusing on little things like maybe this is what the doctor wants. This is someone going for a checkup, let's say, or someone having a settling appointment. It would be like, oh, your payment is like this. We need this document. So it was more of a support thing. It's not so deep like um, interpreting with crisis, someone telling you their own problems and then you interpreting or telling someone else about someone's problems and being there, talking like you're talking about you. Mm. So that's the difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you worked for the Migrant Information Centre, um, helping migrants settle in. What were the biggest issues they faced? So the, the first thing was the language barrier. Yeah. Um, so the they come with very limited language. And so the other thing is the services and the accessibility of the services like transportation. Um, So these were the challenges that they had. Um, Things like going to the doctor, like GP, family doctor. Still, most of African would think you have to pay to see a doctor, but here you had just to have the Medicare to go and see the doctor. And it's like, we have to remind them that you have to see the doctor, book an appointment every six months to go and see the doctor. So, yeah, so that's what I used to do. Yeah. And uh, you also worked for the Victorian Electoral, Electoral Commission yeah. as a community educator showing African migrants how to vote. Uh, was that fairly straightforward or was that a really challenging thing? Uh, it was a straightforward, mm. but... The problem is understanding the system. Of course, it's not. If you go to the system, it doesn't make sense to them saying that 
the preference and the preference is what brings the government in and it's totally different with how you vote for an individual instead mm. of voting for the voting for the party yeah so yeah so that's the only difference but it's straightforward the only thing is we um, what I do was to try and encourage the migrant community that, yes, this is a system, it's a system in place, but it's you, your vote, and someone else that can make the party of your choice come to the power. So it's not something where you have to um, bribe the community. So there's no bribery in this. Everyone is free. You can vote as you want because if you don't vote for the, uh, the current president back at home, then you are in problem. Mm, but yep. here it's like you can vote them out, you can vote them in. So the choice is the community, and mm. that's the difference. Yeah, sure. Um, and you studied at uh, Swinburne University for a Bachelor of uh, Community Health, which is a, a triumph considering where you came from uh, in the battles you had with education early on. Uh, and just a rundown here, you had become a project officer for Wyndham Community and Education Centre in Werribee. Mm. Then... Uh, getting cl you closer here to Manor Lakes, uh, you worked for four schools at the same time, uh, Truganina College, Karen Ballack College, uh, Warringah Park School and Manor Lakes College as an African community liaison officer. I mean, how did you manage to split yourself between four schools at the same time? Um, this was a Victorian initiative to have um, an African in these schools because there's population of African community in the area. And the African students growing in schools, so the number growing up. So I decided to apply for this job because working in the community, I've seen there's a need into our students, seeing the, um, someone like them in the school. And also I've been trying to influence our young generations. I've been helping the parents, but I felt like it's not enough. So I had to come to where I could get them. And I've also seen the disconnection between the families and the student of African background. So when I got the chance for becoming a liaison officer in four different schools, actually Karambalak has two campuses and Oringa Park has three campuses. <laughs> Mana Lake, of course, is a big school with um, services within. So Traganina College is one campus, so it was all right. Um, I thought this is where I can influence more. This is where I can help more. This is where I can tell my story. Yep. And so I had like a day in different schools for in a week. So Manalek had two days because it was a big school. But I had to help in other schools. And I was also like on a... Um, I was flexible enough. So if there's an immediate need for a certain school, then I'll... I'll tell the other school that I'm supposed to be in that there's a need in this school and then I'll go to that school to support the staff and support the students in that school. Yeah. And so you work at our school full time. Um, yeah, so I know you already like kind of have explained it, but yeah, so basically, yeah, what is your role here? My role here hasn't changed much. The only thing my focus at the moment is like students and but I still have to liaise with the staff and, and the community. So I have still call community i had to call like families if the staff can't call the family and they couldn't get them i call them out of hours because i am that flexible enough to call the families i still help with students and if students have issues like they can't sit in class or something is not 
going well with them, then I take them out of class, sit them down, calm them down. If they need a counseling, then I refer them to a counselor. If I feel like it's a mental health issue, I refer them to the mental health practitioner. So if it means I stay in class to support staff, then I go to class and stay in those class that the students are not listening well to support the, the staff in class. Mm. So my role basically at Manor Lake at the moment is like everywhere. So I'm doing the well-being check-in. I'm doing um, the student check-in. I'm supporting the staff still. I'm supporting the parents as well. Yeah, and you mentioned before about um, wanting to make a real difference. Um, you become like a, a confidant and almost a family member to some of these kids. That's how they sort of look upon you as an auntie or a big sister or whatever it might be or another mother figure or something. Um, we obviously can't um, talk in many specifics of it, but... What impact are you and the other student mentors having, do you feel? Um, I, I always tell the students here of African background that once we are out of the Manalek College, you can call me auntie because mm. I am there anti-culturally. I am part of the community and I am a staff in school, but I'm a community member outside. Still having the professional heart, so I carry it with me around. Um. Manalek, I would say that has been set up already. The principal team has set up Manalek, and that's why I felt like I should come in to make to contribute to what has already been set in place. So the mentoring team, we are helping the system that has been set up for success. Mm. So we are trying to push the success become a reality. Um, we're helping the you know at the moment when I first started, there were a lot of of kids outside the school wondering during class time. But at the moment, you could tell that once the bell is gone, all the students are in classes. If you see a student outside, they have to be with a mentor or a staff, which means things are in place. There are no students everywhere. So you can see the impact that we're doing by the experience of how the environment is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the school also is multicultural. And you can tell by seeing the staff. It's a multicultural school. Not only student, but with the staff as well. Yeah. Um, so you try to engage students and their parents in their learning. So how do you try to do that? So what happened is like um, we are monitoring the, the attendance because that was the main thing first. So if the attendance of a student is very low, we call the parents. We ask what's happening, whether it's outside or in school. And once we manage the attendance, we'll go into um, the chronicles, what is written, what are the staff saying about this student? So where do we support this student? And how do we bring this student to the level of other students in the school or in class where they are in? So um, that's how we're doing it and that's how we're helping. We call parents, we talk to the parents, we talk to students, we sometimes approach the staff to ask for more work to be given to students or less work to be given to students. So that's that's part of what we're doing in the school. Yeah. I don't know mm. whether I've answered you right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, how difficult can it be when uh, perhaps they or their parents have experienced the kind of trauma that you were telling us about earlier? Um, this is where my liaising heart comes in. I know the services out there. So for the African uh, parents, if I know the African parent, then I refer them to the other services that would support them better. Mm. We have the counseling with Foundation House. 
So if it's someone with a trauma, we refer them to Foundation House for further support outside the school. Um, with the kids, we have the counselors in school, so we refer them to the counselors in school. Um, I try as well, or we as mentors try and fix a certain time of the week for certain students. So we have to see them weekly to see how they're going just to touch base. And part of the thing that affects us more when we migrate to Australia is that no one is there. It's a bit isolate, isolation. Mm. So that isolation is broken down here in Manalek. So one of the mentors will check in with the students, see how they're going, see how the parents are. So the phone calls to the parents just, oh, my name is Asunta. I'm calling in to check in with you. I'm a student mentor at school, so I'll be seeing your, your child in school. Is there anything you want to tell me about your child? So such things are the ones that are helping. Yeah. Mm, yeah. 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 Um, so do you know how many African countries are represented at our school? Um, I don't really know. <laughs> it's a nice question, yeah. but I think almost 54 yeah. are all represented oh. here. Wow. Wow. Yeah, question without notice, but that's, <laughs> that's fine. Um, yeah. And you have four children of your own. Uh, what, what are their ages? And, and can you please answer, how, how could you possibly juggle all of this with four kids? Uh, I knew this question would come. <laughs> Um, yeah, I do have four children. I have um, a daughter and three sons. And um, thank God for Australia again. Australia is a nice country to be in. I will always be saying this. Yes, for those that got this, this, the other side of the story, yes, they would say no. But with me, it's like a great country to be in. How I'm jangling it. Um, my daughter is now 14 and I have a son who is 12, turning 13 and another one, 10 and seven. So been working full time, been studying full time, been having kids at the same time as I study, <laughs> as working. So yeah. what happened is with childcare, there's childcare subsidy. So the Australian government have subsidized the childcare. So I was getting some percentage and I had to pay some percentage for the childcare and when they all went to school, there's after and before school care. So I take my children to before and after school care. Yeah. I've set up the, the older ones who have gone to high school, they take the school bus and the school bus brings them back. So if the school bus is running late, they text me to let me know, which is again, a system, a better system in place. So yeah. if it's coming before time, they let me know, they text us, so yeah. yeah. And a good way for the kids to make friends too. Exactly. So they're so friendly and they can make their friends and they, they feel independent when they're using the bus. So they're excited to go <laughs> yeah. by bus to school because, um, yeah, I used to drop them in the morning because when I'm starting, I'm starting at 8.30. So I drop them at 8.25 and then come through the, um, across the, like, yeah. it's easy to come driving. But they said, no, we wanted the bus. So they're using the bus to go to school and then they come back. And, but the younger ones have before and after school care. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. And so um, we'll finish with a short segment called Before the Bell. So just some short and sharp questions. Just, just one line uh -huh. as they are. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, wow. That's nice. When I was a kid, I wanted to become a lawyer. But my dad told me you should do sociology. My mom wanted me to be a teacher. So, 
And then coming into high school, I was like, oh, I'll love to be a doctor. Because with African families, we have two careers. That's becoming a doctor or a lawyer. So I wanted to become a doctor. And then my uncle told me, if you want to have kids and have a better family, then you need to do something else, but not medicine. Mm. It's a good thing, but it's not good, especially in Africa where you come late and there are no services in place that much or support in place. So he warned me to not do medicine. So I was like, okay. Um, But when I was actually doing my Bachelor of Public Health, Community Health, my Bachelor of Community Health, my, I did sociology, about four sociological units, yep. and I enjoyed them. Wow. And I realized, I called my dad, I said, <laughs> I wish I went straight to uni and did sociology because that's my fashion, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm studying that at school. Yeah, I love sociology. Yeah. yeah. Good, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. At least. Yeah. <laughs> you two can compare notes yeah. afterwards. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, now, this is a, it's just a standard question. We, all these before the bell questions are standard ones we ask every guest. But this next question probably has extra significance for you considering what you were going through at the time. What advice would you give your teenage self, Asunta? Um, right. I would tell myself to have fun because there's less life. Um, it's like I grew up before my age being the elder one in the family and uh, it was not helping with being the only girl again among mm. boys. So, yeah, if I could be a teenager, then I would at least have time with girls and talk about girl stuff. And I, I tell my daughter all the time, you need to be with girls, grow slowly, <laughs> because once you grow up, you never become a child again. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, who's the most famous person you've met? Possibly your father, even. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is a secret. I met Angelina Jolie. Wow. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right in the refugee camp when I was in the refugee. Oh. I was the girl's advocate. Um, was Brad Pitt there too? No, he wasn't. <laughs> Brad Pitt was met later. <laughs> <laughs> right. After we met with Angelina mm-hmm. Jolie. So, Angelina Jolie came to the refugee camp to see yeah. the refugee students and we were talking about girls' um, school because there were girls could not come to school all the time. So, yeah. So, I spoke with her and she actually helped the United Nations with one million and they built a school called Angelina Jolie that was open. I'm going to see it actually in the yeah. end of the year right. in the refugee camp. And so, yeah, so that's the famous person I met. Wonderful. Oh. Wow. Uh, do you have... the most famous person that you <laughs> that, yeah, that would have to be the most yeah. famous of You've the most famous else. people <laughs> that people have met. Yes. Uh, sorry for our previous uh, guests we've had on. Asunta has the most famous person. Um, now, do you have any hidden talents, Asunta? All right. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I love cooking. So, oh, I'm a handy woman as handy. well. Oh, handy woman. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah. So I love building things. I do my things by myself, and I can change a car tire. Oh, well done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so, who's your favorite singer or group? Oh no. <laughs> In Australia or overseas or anywhere? Anywhere. You can educate us by giving us a cultural experience oh, and we can, no. we can Google them. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't follow music that much because yep. I don't have enough time. Yeah. 
but there was something that I would say. Um, I have a birthday with one of celebrities, so... <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> no, she's crazy, so I'm not going to say it. <laughs> oh, okay. I can look up your birth date on campus, <laughs> no, probably. No. <laughs> so, pity I can't do it right now. Uh, so, what about... You don't have much time, we know, to listen to music. What about to watch any... Like, you got any movies or series recommendations? Uh, all right. At the moment... Okay. I have to be honest here. I didn't grow up with TV, so I knew nothing about the programs, the movies, and so I don't enjoy them much. But at the moment, it's like I had to watch the kids' movies, so I'm growing up with my kids, <laughs> and that's the duration of TV that it has been in my life. So I would say, what do I say? I'll, most of the time I was watching the mm, the play school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, the kids the kids show are the ones that I would... Maybe So Riven, that's So Riven. My sister loved her. It, oh, it was a Disney show. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember yeah. that when I was... Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you most looking forward to in your life right now? Mm, okay. At the moment, it's successful kids. So my focus is like my kids have to be successful. However they could make it, that's what I want. Um... That's the main thing, but again, I'm still dreaming of finishing a master's, so I might go back to school. Not now, but I'm still thinking about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, that probably, we could keep you talking here forever. Uh, you've been wonderful, Asunta. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Um, and to our listeners, you'll be hearing from us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Mannerisms, the Manor Lakes Peter 12 College podcast, is entirely recorded and produced on site here at the college. If you think there's someone we should interview, please email your nominations along with a brief explanation to our email address podcast at manorlakesp12.vic.edu.au or just come over for a chat when you see us around the school. We must thank some wonderful teachers for their time and expertise to this project. Aidan Arendez and his team for their technical production skills to bring this podcast to the airwaves. Quite a time-consuming task indeed. And to Michael Polk for sourcing our hip theme music and designing our stylish cover art. Thanks, gentlemen. And last but not least, thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in. Until next time.